All right. Would you turn to the book of Jonah, if you would, please? The message is entitled, The Rebellious Prophet. Sometimes he's called the prodigal. I called him the prodigal last time I did it uh, 25 years ago, but uh, 15 years ago, but not anymore. Because a prodigal is not born again. The prodigal son in Luke is never born again. He was a sinner. So Jonah does know God. So many times pastors pass off as prodigals, those Christians who backslide. That's unbiblical. The prodigal was never born again. He was dead. Now he's alive. He tells, the father tells the other son. And so the title is The Rebellious Prophet. Now, the book of Jonah is um, considered to be, by, for most people, simply just a story about uh, a fish and a man. Uh, they got swallowed. But in reality, it is the account of God using a fish to get Jonah to the locality that he's supposed to f- fulfill his commission of preaching to Nineveh. The main characters of the book are God and Jonah. The rest are incidentals. They're the two main characters. And uh, God is pursuing the prophet to deal with them that he might obey his will. Uh, let me give you some ways that uh, men in history have seen Jonah. Jonah has been portrayed <clears throat> in the following ways. In relationship to God. Jonah was the rebel of God. Under that, the chapter 1, we see Jonah as the, in, the, in the storm, revealing disobedience and self-will. In chapter 2, we see Jonah and the fish revealing discipline and seeming repentance. In chapter 3, we see Jonah and the city revealing proclamation through seeming obedience. And in chapter 4, we see Jonah and the Lord uh, revealing resentfulness, but learning. And then Jonah is seen as the prophet of God. And under that, in chapter 1, Jonah is portrayed as the rebelling prophet. In chapter 2, Jonah is portrayed as the praying prophet. In chapter 3, Jonah is portrayed as the preaching prophet. And in chapter 4, Jonah is portrayed as the pouting prophet. And then Jonah was the instrument of God also. In chapter 1, the will of God was to be obeyed. In chapter 2, the ways of God were to be learned from. In chapter 3, the work of God was to be rejoiced over. And in chapter 4, the wise of God were to be accepted. Then finally, you have Jonah as a representative of God. In chapter 1, God is pursuing the rebelling prophet. In chapter 2, God is preserving the praying prophet. In chapter 3, God is preaching through the poisoned prophet. And in chapter 4, God is preaching to the pouting prophet. Now you thought the book of Jonah was just a real simple little story. What we want to do is examine Jonah, the rebel of God, which um, unfolds and develops in three movements. Let me read our text for us. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amati, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so the ship was about to be broken up. And then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God, and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest part of the ship, had laid down, and was fast asleep. 
So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Please let us uh, tell us for whose cause is this trouble upon us. What is your occupation? Where you come from? Where is your country? And of what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to the land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life, and not charge us with the innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleases you. So they picked up Jonah and they threw him into the sea and the sea ceased from the raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they took vows. Now, the scene for us here, the story in this first chapter of the rebel of God unfolds in these three movements. First, we have the rejection of the word of God by Jonah, verse 1 through 3. Secondly, we have the confrontation by the ways of God towards Jonah, in verse 4 through 13. And then third, we have the revelation of the will of God for Jonah, 14 through 16. Let's begin here with the rejection of the word of God for Jonah. Notice in verse 1 through 3, the prophet Jonah was uh, imparted divine revelation directly from God. The words say, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying. So the word received by Jonah was from the covenant God. Notice that of Israel. Now the word of the Lord, of the word of the Lord. All capital letters, that's the name Yahweh. It's called the tetragrammaton, big old word, uh, for the four consonants. Y-H-W-H, because there were no vowels put in it. And they left it like that because the Jews believed that God's name was so holy that you shouldn't pronounce it. But God never intended that. In fact, in Exodus 3.15, he told this to Moses. He says, this is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Revealing um, all he is, his person, his character, his authority, his power, his reputation. In fact, um, the word uh, I am that I am is a verb form, to be. And that's the root of this word. He's the one that brought them out of Egypt. He's the one that, that showed the gods of Egypt to be no gods at all. He's a covenant God. Now, the manner um, God revealed his word um, is literally the word of Yahweh to Jonah. Or it came to pass, or it happened that. The book is a narrative. 
The Bible reveals various ways that God communicates to his prophets. And as we've been studying the minor prophets, we've already made mention of some. But sometimes he spoke um, uh, audibly to a prophet. Other times there was an impression upon their mind and heart. At other times there were dreams and visions that God did. And we know Pharaoh and many others. So, but God communicates very clearly. Not only to believers, because God communicates to Nebuchadnezzar as well as to Pharaoh. Okay? Now, the messenger responsible for the word of God imparted uh, was Jonah. He is the instrument that God has chosen. Jonah means the dove. You back, look back to Noah when he sent the dove. It's a symbol of peace, okay? But, but Jonah has no peace. And uh, all he wants is the peace of the Assyrians. Um, Eighteen times his name appears in the book. Jewish tradition mentions that Jerome uh, mentions the Jewish tradition that he was the son of the Seraphath widow that Elijah raised from the dead, but uh, there's no evidence to that at all. Now, notice the lineage of Jonah is indicated, uh, the son of Amittai, and, and the name Amittai means my truth, so revealing that his father and family line were men of, uh, of integrity, character, um, trustworthiness to an extent. And um, the name Amittai only appears one other time in Second Kings chapter 14, verse 25. Uh, in that passage, God had revealed during the reign of Jeroboam II, as we've been studying the Minor Prophets, we're familiar with him, uh, 793 to about 753 B.C., that the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamas to the Sea of Arabah would be restored, Second Kings 14.25. So Jonah prophesied that <clears throat> during the evil reign of, of, of Jeroboam II. Okay? And God used Jonah to prophesy according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he has spoken through Jonah. And so Jonah's origin is stated in that text from uh, Gath-Hefer, which means winepress of digging. And Gath-Hefer was um, three miles or so north of Nazareth and Zebulun of Galilee, um, later to be known as Cana. Um, you find that in Joshua 19.13. Now, notice Jonah in 2 Kings is recorded to be literal, a literal historical person. Because many people say, well, I don't know if I believe Jonah in the book. Well, he's put next to Jeroboam II. Now, you believe Jeroboam II existed. We have all the evidence. Well, Jonah's put right side by side and he prophesied to him. Maybe even the capital of Samaria. So you can't believe in one and dispel the other. They're like Twinkies. They go together. That's for the critics. The writing is about 765 B.C. Now, notice in verse 2, the prophet Jonah heard his commission and he proclaimed the word of God. Or, or to proclaim the word of God, he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Jonah understood clearly at this point the imperative command of his commission to go to to those who were the constant enemies of Israel, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city. The magnificence of the city of Nineveh was incredible. The capital of the Assyrian kingdom. It was established way back by Nimrod, if you remember, in Genesis 10, 11. That's the first mention. Um, there was Nineveh proper and four large cities that were situated on the edge of the trapezoid-shaped sort of territory, Nineveh proper, um, 300, 350 square miles. Now, Nineveh, in the border sense, was 
bounded by three sides, on three sides by rivers. On the northwest, the Kosher, on the west by the Tigris, and on the southwest by the Gezer Sioux, and the upper or Great Zeb, and on the fourth side by mountains, which ascended from the rocky plateau, and it was fortified artificially all around on the river sides with dams, sluices for inundating the land and the canals on the land side with ramparts and castles. And archaeology bears witness to this. Kyle, the commentator, gives us great detail in others. Now, the population is estimated at least, at least a million. In fact, when we get to chapter uh, 4, verse 11, it says 120,000 infants. It couldn't tell the left from the right hand. That's just infants. So a conservative one million, probably more. Um, notice the word great, great here. It appears 14 times in the book of, of um, Jonah. Six times it is in reference to the chief or major importance of the city or the noble leaders. You find it here first in verse 2, then in uh, 3, 2, 3, 3, 3, 5, 3, 7, and then 4, 11. Eight times it is used to mean large in size or extent. <clears throat> you find that in Jonah 1, 4, two times, uh, verse 10, 12, 16, and 17, and then chapter 4, verse 1 and 6. So the word will be used in two different ways. Now, Jonah understood also, notice, that if he obeyed his commission to the Assyrians, they might repent, and God would have to forgive them and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, we are not speculating. Listen to the witness and the testimony of Jonah's own words as we read chapter 4, verse 2. So he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarsus, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. I'm not going, because if I go and if they repent, you will forgive them. Whoa. Jonah has a very hard heart, hateful heart. The word wickedness appears nine times. Seven times it means disagreeable, unpleasant, or trouble, synonymous with disaster, misery, difficulty, or harm. Here in chapter 1, verse 2, 7 and 8, and 3, 10, 4, 1, 2, and 6. Two times it means evil, Jonah 3, 8, and 3, 10. Same word, but translated different because of the context. Now notice um, Assyria prior to Jeroboam the second had made Israel, as we've been studying the Old Testament with the minor prophets, uh, pay tribute for 50 years, if you remember. And um, they often made attacks from the north as they came down. Uh, Jonah was personally familiar, I'm sure, with many of the atrocities and the cruelties of, um, of the Assyrians. Perhaps even some friends had suffered such losses, or maybe even family members. But uh, he, he didn't like these guys. And um, Assyria was known for three things. It's uh, fertility cults dealing with sexual perversion. It's child sacrifice to the god Molech. And cruelty and warfare. And this third one was a, a, a quite awesome one because their cruelty was fearfully intimidating. Uh, they, um, they lived on, on plunder. 
And they prided themselves in the mounds of skulls they brought back. And they traveled with their families. They tore people's tongues out, buried them up to their neck, and just pierced their tongues into the ground and leave them there with ants to come on them. They flayed people alive and stretched their skins out on the wall, impaling them on poles, much like, like, like uh, um, Count Dracula, the real one in history. They used to impale people. Armies would come and they would just be so fearful, they would just turn away. They led their captives away by hooks in their lips. Amos 4.2 confirms this. We studied him. In fact, Nahum says this. Woe to the bloody city being full of lies and robbery. The whip and the multitude of corpses and harlotries being a mistress of sorceries selling nations and families. Nahum 3, 1 through 4, 10 and 19. So the Assyrians were a, a, a gruesome, gruesome people. The entire cities would commit mass suicide rather than to be taken captive. Now, notice Jonah didn't mind prophesying the restoration to the idolatrous Jeroboam II, king of Israel. But he did mind preaching to Nineveh repentance. We're very selective in God's love sometimes as Christians. We can't do that. None of us can. Notice the people... Or the prophet Jonah here decided to disobey the word of his commission in verse 3. But Jonah rose and he fled to Tarsus from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarsus. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarsus from the presence of the Lord. Jonah rose to flee to Tarsus from the presence of the Lord, he tells us. Now, Jonah arose to flee. Now, Tarsus is believed to have been Tartessus, a Phoenician colony in Spain near the uh, Straits of Gibraltar. The Phoenicians were incredible sailors, and that seemed to be recognized at the end of the world there. And uh, the phrase to flee from the presence of the Lord didn't mean that Jonah really believed that if he went far enough, God wouldn't be there. Because the psalm says, and, and he'll quote it later on, if, he's, if I go to hell, you're there. Where I go, I can't flee from you. But what he meant was, I'm not having anything to do with this call, and I'm leaving. Um, he went opposite. He should have gone this way, he went that way. Completely opposite. Maybe you're like that. Okay? Maybe the story's not about Jonah. Maybe it's about you or about me. Notice Jonah went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. Joppa was in the Mediterranean. Some of you have been there with us. We stopped there uh, on our trips. And uh, on the southwest coast of Israel, in the territory of Dan, a primary port that was used by Solomon in 2 Chronicles 2.16 to float the, um, the timber down from Syria down to build a temple. Um, Joppa was the very place where Peter was told by Jesus, take, kill, and eat it. He's up in the roof of Joppa, and he says, not so, Lord, contradicting that. And he was giving him a vision, a direction to go to the Gentiles, to the house of Cornelius in Acts 10. Both of these men, same place, Joppa, and both audience, Gentile, because the Jews believed they were special people, self-righteous, instead of being an instrument to reach others. They got it backwards. Now, Jonah paid the fare. Notice, and went down into the ship to go with them to Tarsus from the presence of the Lord. As I said, probably Phoenicians, but notice he paid his own fare. 
Disobedience is always costly to a person. You know what I'm talking about. You have paid your own fare at times. I have paid my own fare at times. And it has cost us dearly. The word down is stated two times for emphasis. For rebellion and disobedience always leads me and you down away from God. Always. The presence of the Lord again is emphasized about his rebellion. I am not going. Now we're going to see some people always say, well, as a Christian, you know, if you're not obeying God, you don't have any pieces in that. Really? We're going to see that's a contradiction. Because Jonah was sleeping fast as a baby. Now you remember Jeremiah. He kept uh, getting in trouble as he kept preaching the word to people. And he got so fed up that he said he wasn't going to speak anymore for God. And in Jeremiah 20, verse 9, it says, Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak anymore in his name. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire, shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back. I could not. So he spoke. Now, this is exactly what God is seeking in the heart of Jonah. But he has a very hard heart. You may be coming to church, you may be reading the word, but you have a hard heart for someone, for some things. God can't work with that. God's not pleased. Each of us have been given the great commission to preach to all. The gospel is the gospel of grace to sinners and the ungodly. I presume you qualify. Romans 5, 6. You see, I can understand why God saved me, but you I'm not sure of. The source is always grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Some of us are bothered by the fact that some people are going to be forgiven and in heaven with us. Because of what they've done to others, or maybe perhaps what they've done to you. And yet Romans three twenty three says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Welcome to the club. The rejection and disobedience of God's word of salvation due to our hatred of certain people is a costly hindrance, first to our own lives. Ignoring our own unworthiness to be saved apart from grace. Refusing to yield to the love of God for lost sinners. For our love is fickle. It's conditional. We can always find the exception. That's how we reason as sinners. Even though we're saved. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Wow. He has given you and me that word of reconciliation because we know what it is to be lost. We know what it is to to mess up in sin. And we know what it is to be forgiven and receive the peace of God. Freely you have been given. Freely you've received. Freely you must give. Wow. This was the rejection of the word of God by Jonah. Not a pretty picture, is it? And you thought the only problem he had was that he was in the belly of the fish. That, That was his least problem. Second movement comes, a confrontation by the ways of God towards Jonah. Don't miss them. Notice in verse 4 to 13. 4 to 5, the storm was divinely sent by God. 
The disapproval of God was revealed, but the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea. The word but marks the sharp contrast between God's command and Jonah's disobedience. The word sent out literally means hurled. God's showing his disapproval. He just starts a storm right now. The result being, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. This is the first miracle introduced. A great wind on the sea resulting in a mighty tempest in the sea. It's not the only one. There's five other miracles we're going to see. Really six, which is the greatest. I'm going to give it to you right now. I'm going to give you the end at the beginning. The salvation of the Ninevites. The greatest miracle, listen to me carefully, the greatest miracle in the world is salvation. The miracle of the storm, the fish, as he swallows Jonah, the gourd, and everything else. Those are not as great of miracles. The greatest miracle is the salvation of a sinner. That's the greatest miracle, the power of God. Notice the situation was perilous, so that the ship was about to be broken up. The safe, seemingly safe voyage turned to be very, very dangerous now. The ship was about to be broken up. The violent storm of the winds and the waves just battering it. If you've been at sea, whenever it's been a little bumpy, it gets kind of weird. Now, notice God, by the storm, caused the sailors to respond in a desperate way. Verse 5. The seasoned sailors, and mark that well, seasoned sailors recognized the storm was life-threatening. Then the mariners were afraid. The sailors turned to their pagan localized deities. They were freaked out. They were afraid. And everyone cried out to his God. The sailors began to lighten the ship also. They threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. They're seasoned mariners. They know they've got to get this stuff. Now, think about it while I'm saying this. If they have a, 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 a job to do to get the destination and leave all the, all the merchandise they brought with them, now it's cast in the sea, are they going to continue their voyage? I don't think so. I think they're going to go back because they have nothing to deliver. And when they get back, that's the first place they're going to drop all this revelation what God did and Jonah and everything else. And then Joan was going to write the book. <laughs> the rebellious prophet Jonah was peacefully asleep, though, while all this is going on. Verse 5, he had remained in the lower deck, but Jonah had gone down into the lowest part of the ship. He got his fare paid, it, got on board, I'm going to sleep. He was not afraid or desperate. He laid down and was fast asleep. Now, how many times have you heard pastors say and preachers say, well, if you're out of the will of God, you're just miserable. Not always. That's not true. Jonah wasn't. Listen carefully. The innocent often suffer and are endangered by our sin, while the guilty are indifferent or unconcerned about the danger. Human nature is pretty, pretty ugly. Notice verse 6 through 9, the storm now caused them to inquire of God. In verse 6, the captain confronted Jonah. He was annoyed at Jonah's indifference, and rightly so. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? You slacker? 
He commanded Jonah to intercede to his God for safety. Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. The very same word that God gave in this commission in chapter 1 verse 2, arise. God is dealing with the prophet's heart, but it's hard. You as a parent dealt with your children or do deal with your children. And sometimes you confront them to have them acknowledge and admit they're wrong and and you lay it out for them. But they're they're standing up. They're going yes like this, but their heart's saying, "Mm mm-mm. The sailors were convinced the storm was due to one of them. Look at verse 7. They resorted to lots to find the guilty man. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. Though pagans, God used the lots to reveal the guilty man. So they cast lots and the lots fell on Jonah. They were like dice. They'd be white, black. There's a lot of speculation. We don't know. But God did the same to replace Matthias for Judas in Acts one twenty six, Because in two chapters later, the book of Acts says, and the twelve being present. So Matthias was a legitimate twelve apostle, not Paul. Matthias met the qualifications since the baptism of John and the resurrection of Jesus. Paul did not. He saw him risen, but not from the baptism. Paul never claimed to be the 12th apostle. Proverbs 16.33 says, man decide by the, the decision of the loss from the Lord. God's in control, and yet he doesn't force you. He gives you free will. I don't understand all that. But God is fair, just. Notice in verse 8, the sailors questioned Jonah. They sought him to confess his guilt. Then they said to him, please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? They asked him for his person. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Jonah reveals his person and they freak out. Verse 9. He stated his nationality. So he said to them, I am a Hebrew. Just hearing that freaked them out. They knew Israel. They knew their history. He stated, he revered Yahweh. And I fear the Lord Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. The word fear here in this context is different now. It means reverent worship. But this hypocrisy, Jonah is dishonorable. He's disobedient. He's rebelling. Hey, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. But your heart is hard. You go to church. Oh, yeah, I go to church. But your heart is hard. You stay in the word. Oh, yeah, I stay in the word. But your heart is hard. Hmm. Yet Jonah acknowledged the God of heaven, the creator of the ocean, the land, the one behind the storm. Biblically, it's accurate. Theologically. But is God only interested in theological information or your heart? Hmm. Look at 10 through 13. The storm reached a crisis to obey God. In verse 10, Jonah was um, rebuked by the unbelieving pagans 
At this point, the pagans started looking better than Jonah. The sailors became more fearful. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and the sailors were incensed for bringing this upon them and said to him, Why have you done this? You've been there. I've been there. You've told people, why did you do that to me? Why did you say that? Why? We, we know what, it's, what that does to our heart. We know that what it does to our thoughts. This is the confrontation for Jonah. Why have you done this? The pagans asking the, the believer. Wow. The pagan turns around and says, what are you doing in this bar if you're a Christian? What are you doing in the theater if you're a Christian? Wow. The sailors knew his disobedience. Listen to his words. For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then in verse 11 and 12, Jonah was willing to die rather than to do God's will. This guy is just, man, hard. Notice he didn't take his life. Very important point. Another man said, Lord, kill me, Elijah, but never took his life. Jonah's going to ask God to kill him again. (laughs) A Christian doesn't commit suicide. That's a hopeless action of unbelievers, not believers. Make sure you understand that. Only five people recorded in Scripture of suicide, okay? All of them were not in a good position. I wouldn't want to be one of them. Notice the sailors asked Jonah for the situation, seeing the storm was increasing in intensity. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us, for the sea is is growing more tempestuous? Again, these are seasoned sailors. These guys are mariners. These guys aren't sissy lalas. I mean, these guys are, they're, they're men. The disobedient and rebellious prophet said that he was the solution to calming the storm. And he said to them, pick me up, throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Jonah would rather die than do the will of God. Wow. He's a prophet of God. He'd rather die than repent and ask forgiveness at this point. That's hard. That's a hard heart. And that can happen to any one of us and perhaps has had in the past or maybe in the present. Hmm. Notice 13, Jonah advised. His advice was rejected by the pagans. Sailors, at this point, they're more ethical and moral than him. They found themselves in a dilemma, so they attempted to fight and to ride out the storm. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to the land. So they're just trying to get back. They're trying not to resort to this. You know, they don't want to go there. They knew the impossibility of riding out the storm after a while. But they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. But this is God, right? They've already agreed the storm's from God. 
The ways of God can be costly and extreme at times. You know why? Listen to me very carefully. Because He loves us. You as a parent know when you have to get extreme with your children, it's because you love them, not because you hate them. Then why do we charge God foolishly when He moves in such ways towards us? You remember David thought he got away with his sin with Bathsheba and murdering Uriah until God sent Nathan. And then Nathan prophesied his sin would be forgiven. David, you are the man. Your sin is forgiven. You shall not die, but the child will die. And your wives will be defiled before all of Israel by your son. You see, forgiveness is not the issue, ladies and gentlemen. God is more than willing. He's waiting to forgive our sin. The question is, can you live with the consequences of the baggage of your disobedience and your sin? That's the real question. God will, in the times of our disobedience and rebellion, discipline us. At times, allowing the natural consequence of our sins to come upon us. Galatians 6, 7 through 8 says... Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, that shall he reap. You sow the flesh, you reap corruption. You sow the spirit, you reap everlasting life. Absolute principle for believer and non-believer. At other times, he exposes our sin. Numbers 32, 23. Your sin will find you out. As he exposed David and many others, and he has in life, he'll do that sometimes. And then still at other times, he'll bring upon us supernatural chastening. Sickness, even death, 1 Corinthians 11.30. Because he loves us. Now, our disobedience and rebellion will make us indifferent and unrepentant. We can endanger others in our lives, like David, that dwelt in Ziglag, remember, and everyone's children and wives were taken by the Amalekites in 2 Samuel 30, verse 1 through 16. And the people were ready, to, his own people were ready to stone him. Because his disobedience to God and living in Gentile territory caused the wives and the children of those who were fighting with him. We can be rebuked even by unbelievers like David by Achish. Remember when he played the madman, he was brought before Achish and he said, Isn't this David who killed Goliath? And, and he started acting like crazy and letting spit run down the thing and growling at the door and everything else. But he was rebuked by that king in 1 Samuel 21, 14 and 15. And sometimes non-believers do rebuke. As I said, there you are in a bar witnessing. What are you doing in there? Or you're in a certain place. You fill in the blank. What are you doing there? Or you take a girl on a date and you're trying to get over on her. What are you doing that? Or you go by the old neighborhood and you get some meth, get some pot, spend some time on cloud nine. What are you doing there? Hmm. Our confession without repentance, ladies and gentlemen, is worthless. Like Jonah. This only magnifies our sinful rebellion and disobedience like the young man sleeping with his stepmother in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. He acknowledged it, but he didn't do nothing about it. How many of you slept with your girlfriend last night? Or boyfriend? 
or got drunk. It's not repentance. It's worthless. The first person that hurts and hinders is me and you and our relationship to God. Listen to the kind of repentance God wants. Second Corinthians seven ten. It says, uh, "For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death." Second Corinthians seven ten. Death. In other words, you're sorry for the consequences, your tears, and everything, but you're not you're not sorry for your sin. That just brings forth death because after your tears are over, you're going to go do it again. This was a confrontation by the ways of God towards Jonah. God got severe. Now, the third movement comes in 14 through 16, the revelation of the will of God for Jonah. In verse 14, the will of God was that no one perish for someone else's sin. Simple. The sailors acknowledged Yahweh as God and prayed to him. So, in spite of Jonah, God is working on these sailors. He's working more on the sailors than in the heart of Jonah. The sailors acknowledged God as, as God, and they prayed to him. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord Yahweh and said, We pray, O Lord, all capital letters. God has been working on their hearts. God did this in spite of Jonah. God will save people in spite of our bad example. But that's no excuse for a bad example. The sailors made two petitions. That they not die for the rebellious disobedience of Jonah. Please do not let us perish for this man's life. And that they not be held responsible for his death. And do not charge us with innocent blood. Whoa, these guys are commendable. Then notice the sailors recognized the storm was the sovereign work of God. Listen carefully. For you, O Lord, Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. All of his ways are perfect. Sovereignty means that he never violates any of his attributes, his holiness, his kindness, his love, nor violate your will. He'll always do everything he can to reach you. Always. God does not want the sailors to perish because of Jonah, just as he didn't want the Assyrians to perish because of Jonah. Simple. Now notice 15. The will of God was that the believer be disciplined. Don't miss this. The sailors recognized that they had to ultimately resort to the advice of Jonah and that God had pointed out Jonah to be guilty. So they picked up Jonah and they threw him into the sea. I don't think there was a smile on their face as I read this narrative. They have fought this thing every, every inch. Reluctantly, they recognized this was to be the work of God. They recognize this to be the pursuit of God after his disobedient prophet. Notice the sailors recognized conclusively they had received the evidence of the guilt of Jonah in God's confirmation. You say, where? Listen. And the sea ceased from its raging. You say, so what? 
This is the second miracle in the book of Jonah. The sea ceased from raging. See, a storm may be over, but the water keeps stirring. The minute they threw Jonah, the storm was over, the water you could ski on. That's a miracle. If you know anything about the ocean. God's in control. But he doesn't force the heart of man. But he deals with the heart of man. The notice in 16, the will of God was that people come to salvation. The pagans worship Yahweh. Then the men feared the Lord Yahweh exceedingly. The exceedingly fear here means reverential honor now and worship, not fear like the storm. The context dictates that. Looking and trusting Yahweh now. They, they went from pagans to believers, just like the Thessalonians. Turning from their gods, there were no gods at all. The pagans affirmed their worship of Yahweh, and they offered sacrifice to the Lord Yahweh and took vows. So apparently they still had some animals on the ship they had not thrown over. This was genuine conversion taking place. How do I know? Because their decision was made when they, everything was all safe. Not in the midst of danger. It wasn't when the waves were all around and everything else. Oh God, if you save us, we'll, we'll serve you. Everybody does those kind of conversions. Jailhouse conversion, you know. We receive divorce papers or whatever. You fill in the blank. If you won't get me out, you know, the closet got emergency. 911 got. No, the seas come. They're safe. All of a sudden, they're offering sacrifice. They took vows unto him. This was conversion by the compassionate love of God. Wow. This was Jonah and the will of God. Now, God revealed to Habakkuk that he was going to use Babylon to chasten Israel. Remember? Habakkuk 2. Habakkuk said, I'm your prophet. What are you doing, God? Not, what's going on? He said, well, I'm going I'm to use Babylon to chasten Israel. And Habakkuk said, I can't believe it. I told you you can't believe it. We'll get there when we study him. The will of God is for sinners to be saved. But not all will believe in in the offer of his son. It's a choice. Some don't want to be saved. Others will believe and be saved. So John 3.16 is an invitation. But God forces no one. Every person that ends up in hell. It's their own accountability and responsibility. They're fully responsible for it. Not God. Listen to Second Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. As some men count slackness. But is long suffering. Not towards us. Not willing that any should perish. But that all should come to repentance. Well if God is not willing that any should perish. Why isn't everybody born again? Because God doesn't force you to go to heaven. Just as he doesn't force you to go to heaven. You get to choose where you want to spend eternity. Based on what he has accomplished for you. He died in your place. You pay the price for your sin. You're in need of a savior to forgive you of your sin. To make a new creature of you. 
to give you a new heart, a new mind, a new nature, a new spirit, new hope. The will of God is revealed in the word of God. That the believer grow and obey. Romans 12, 1 and 2, the conclusion of that great treatise. I beg you by the mercy of God, you present your body, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And be not fashioned to this world system, but be metamorphosed, transformed by the renewing of your mind to prove what is that good, acceptable, and the perfect will of God. That's for the believer. But also that the believer maintain fellowship with God by confessing his sin in 1 John. 2-1, you as a parent, when you're tweaked out with your children, you're seeking to reconcile with them by them acknowledging and confessing, and then you give the forgiveness, and you're back in each other's arms, right? In fellowship, that's the same with the Lord. My little children, I write these things to you that you do not practice sin, but when you stumble, you have Jesus Christ, a righteous, an advocate for your defense, a lawyer for your defense, First John 2-1. And so as we blow it during the day, whatever it is, we ask God to forgive us. We stay in fellowship. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Psalm 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, God does not hear me. But also that the believer be disciplined when he or she is rebellious, disobedient, and rejecting God's word. Listen to Hebrews 12, 5 through 11. And see if that's not true for you as a parent with your children. And if it is, as it says, then how much more right does God have to deal with us that way? Listen carefully. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the father does not chasten? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is none. If you're a son, he will. But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? Yes, for they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemeth best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The way people know that you have been a faithful parent in training your children to be decent, respectful, moral, and effective adults in society is by the way they conduct themselves when they grow up. If they're not, then you didn't do that job. It's very obvious. This was the revelation of the will of God for Jonah. Wow. The first portrayal of Jonah as the rebel of God has been laid out for us in these threefold movements. The rejection of the word of God by Jonah. The confrontation by the ways of God 
towards Jonah and the revelation of the will of God for Jonah. God has just begun to deal with Jonah. But maybe he's dealing with you. If he is, do not harden your heart. As in the day of provocation, the author of Hebrews says. Whoever falls upon this rock will be broken. Whoever the rock falls upon, they will be crushed, Jesus said. It's better to humble ourselves than to be humbled. God would rather forgive than to act in wrath. That's always his way. Lord, thank you for your grace and love, your goodness. We pray that you be with our each of us. Speak to us, Lord. And Father, we thank you for your warnings, your loving care. And for this book, Lord, we pray, Lord, even now, as we're here, I pray for every person you have upon them. And Lord, those over the Internet, and even those who are listening, Lord, uh, uh, through radio. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. You alone have to repent and can repent. And if you ask God to forgive you, he will cleanse you and make a new creature of you. Your prayer has to come from your own mouth as you believe God's word that he died for you and rose from the dead. So if you're here or over the internet, you want to be born again, this is your prayer of repentance. You can speak to the Lord, and he's going to make you a born-again Christian right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your love. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.